From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Thanks for joining us again here on WXCI 91.7 from Danbury, Connecticut. This is Public Reading Club. I am Matt Caputo. I have been your host now for uh, since we started the show last semester. And now it's the fall again here at Western Connecticut State University and classes uh, began today. It's so new here on campus that uh, myself, um, uh, our engineer and co-producer Patrick Frenette, and our guest today, John H. Richardson, we were all locked out of the studio for a little while, so we didn't get in here uh, right away, but we, we, we made it in eventually, and th- this has got to be one of our best episodes of Public Reading Club. John H. Richardson is a prolific journalist. He's a very, just very talented writer who's uh, had a long career uh, writing for such publications as, uh, you know, probably best known for his work at Esquire and uh, Premier Magazine, also Playboy and New York Magazine. He's taught um, writing at several colleges. He he kind of grew up living around the world with his father, who was a CIA agent, and he has a fantastic um, book about that called My Father the Spy. But he joined us today to talk about uh, his most recent um, release, uh, a collection of his crime stories called Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and other stories. Um, it's out now from the Stax Reader, uh, Neotext, and the Sega Group, who just have done a fantastic job of bringing these really great magazine stories, some of them that do kind of take you back in time a little bit, but, but some of them are uh, relevant today, and, and all of them are very entertaining. So if you can check out anything from the Stax Reader series, uh, Alex Belf is the um, kind of editor and curator of that, uh, and he's worked very closely with another prolific long-form journalist, Mike Sager, uh, to put together a bunch of great collections. And this is one of them, Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan, by John H. Richardson, who came up to the studio and chatted with us today. It was really fantastic. Um, to connect with somebody who's just done so many stories, long-form stories, um, newspaper uh, article series um, in his past career in Los Angeles. Uh, he also worked in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a while prior to um, functioning as mostly a magazine and long-form journalist. Uh, it was really great to have him here. I was especially glad to have him on considering that I just missed him uh, by a little bit um, at SUNY Purchase where I attended and he actually taught there right after I left and that was a little disappointing uh, considering he's uh, somebody who would have been perfect to learn from so uh, just another case of me being uh, a little late uh, on everything I do but uh, we're back again it's really great to have you all listening if there's anybody out there we are going to get back to new episodes every month. I don't know if there'll be two every month, but there'll definitely be one and uh, perhaps more than that. I think I'm going to release two here in September just to kick off 
um, the school year here at Westcon and on WXCI with new episodes of the Public Reading Club. I think we will do that. So we'll 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 have released um, another episode with David Rich, um, and now we'll we'll release uh, this great one with John H. Richardson. You know, one third of his career was out in Los Angeles. And he's got so many great Hollywood stories. Some of them are collected here in Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan. Um, Really fantastic story about these Hollywood grifters and kind of low-level softcore producers and other people that are in that world um, that borders on, uh, you know, I guess that borders on the lowest levels of celebrity uh, people go after. And uh, a lot of his stuff from that world is really poignant and it's really telling and it was really great to have him just come on the show I, I you know uh, I think I pulled him away from a little beach trip but uh, the long and the short of it is it was great um, to connect with him here on Public Reading Club and I think you should check out all of his stories a lot of his stories are Googleable. Um, there are so many that just seem not to be but um, I think um in the next couple of years, hopefully we'll see maybe some more collections um, from him and uh, the Stacks Reader series, perhaps, or, or something like that, you know? So um, thanks for staying tuned. We're going to kind of keep it brief on the top half of the show right now, just get you into the interview with Richardson. But uh, like I said, I want to tell you that the, the Instagram is active. We're going to post new episodes immediately. Um, like I said, starting this month, September so uh, just stay with us if there's anybody out there that has book recommendations article recommendations um, just send it our way via Instagram or you can email me Mr. Matt Caputo at gmail.com mr. period Matt Caputo at gmail.com is probably the easiest way to reach me or by DMing us on Instagram which is at public reading club Uh, thanks so much and I'll see you very briefly at the bottom of the show Welcome back to the Public Reading Club. It has been a good while. Uh, Now that we're back, we have a few episodes on tap today. uh, We're here at WXEI Studios with one of my favorite writers, for sure. Uh, I think that that's one of the benefits of doing this show. I've been able to invite a lot of my favorite writers on. And um, born in Washington, D.C., John Richardson grew up in Athens, Manila, Saigon, Washington, Seoul, Honolulu, Los Angeles. He... uh, graduated from the University of Southern California and from Columbia University, looks like. He worked for the Albuquerque Tribune at first, and then the Los Angeles Times, and then for Premier Magazine before going to publish stories in New York Magazine, Playboy, a number of other publications, and he had a long run at Esquire. Uh, He's taught at Columbia University, the University of New Mexico, and my alma mater, Purchase College. He's a uh, just a prolific writer. He was one of my favorite stories. He was nominated for the 2010 uh, National Magazine Award, and he's here with us today. John, I really can't thank you enough and apologize for the delay getting into the studio. Hi, man. It's great to be here. How how was the drive <coughs> over today? Is it, you're just in Endless. upstate New York. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I came from the beach. It was three hours. So, oh, so my God. Glad to be out of Where'd the Where'd you car. go to Jones Beach? Nah, just to uh, visit some somebody out in the Hamptons. Okay. So, uh... It, it is great to be here with you today. I wanted to tell you that um, we're, we're talking to John because he recently released a collection of his 
of his stories. Um, the title is Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and Other Stories under the Stacks Reader Series, which is uh, being curated by Alex Belf, uh, former editor at Esquire. Um, I had a fantastic time reading over these stories. There's definitely some of them that have been lost to time. Um, but how did it come about? Before, before we get into everything, how did this book come about? Sager called me up, said, you want to do a book of crime stories? I said, sure, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> um, when, when did you, when, this just came out kind of in the last year or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Like November. That's awesome. It, yeah. it was really a blast. We're going to get into most of the stories and a few others of History of the Chris. But, you know, John, you have a very interesting bio. You have all these places where you spent time as, as kind of a young person. Uh, do you want to clarify your kind of transient early years being the son of a... Uh, uh, CIA agent. Yeah, yeah. My dad worked for the agency, uh, <laughs> and we traveled a lot around everywhere. We lived everywhere. I'm a cro- I'm a what they call a third culture kid. So, which is good for journalism because you know you're all about observing dif- different cultures. You know, f- f- a friend of mine's wife said, "I get you. You're into subcultures," and I was like, "Huh." That's interesting, but I think they're all subcultures. Yeah, definitely. You know, just different levels of them. Where were you actually born, John? D.C. You were born yeah. in D.C.? Walter Reed Military Hospital. Your, did, did your family live in Virginia or Maryland? Or? <clears throat> My dad worked uh, at the agency headquarters there for... And then we went back when I was 10 or 11. Wow. Lived another few years there. Where did you actually do your high school years? Well, I didn't really do my high school years. <laughs> I did two years in uh, Seoul American High School in Seoul, Korea, and then I d- decided to separate myself from the institution. Wow. <clears throat> so you just kind of went out and about for a while, huh? Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I went out and about and applied to some colleges because I thought I was special, and I got into a couple of colleges and then didn't go, got into an accident. Ended up going to USC because my sister applied for me. I was going to just travel around Asia where I was at the time. I was My parents had left Korea, and I stayed with a bunch of ne'er-do-wells in, uh, in uh, a farmhouse somewhere out in the country. And uh, uh, my sister met some administrators from USC and filled out an application for me and sent me a letter and said, you got into USC, come, <laughs> come to L.A. So I did it. <laughs> what year do you think that was? That was 1973. Wow. What was it like back then? L.A.? Yeah. Have you seen um, that movie about the uh, the buddy comedy about the actor and his body double? Oh, I can't think of the name of it. came out two years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just like that. Wow. The, the, it looked exactly like that. It, But L.A. hasn't changed that much except for downtown and all that. How long did you live there? I lived there for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. So l- let's just backtrack just a little bit so that we could get kind of on the on the right path here. What, when was your <laughs> earliest interest in writing? I started writing, you know, in high school, in, in middle school, uh, just because I like to read and, you know, you like to write. And then teachers started telling me that I could write. And so I figured, well, that's the one thing I seem to be able to do because I, c- I wasn't as good at tennis and stuff as some of the other kids. And 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't as good at tennis. <laughs> well, I was on the tennis team. I was on the swim team. I was on the football team. I was on the wrestling team. Wow. But there was always good guys, people who I went to a boys' school for, for a while. And they're all really gifted athletes. So, you know, and math was a disaster. Oh, yeah. Eh, writing. <laughs> so, yeah, one pivotal moment in my life in ninth grade, a teacher gave me a well, I'd written something, and she wrote something on it, and said, "Take this to the counselor, ad advisor, you know, for college counseling and stuff like that." Wow! And it said, you know, something complimentary about my writing. Must have made you feel good. <laughs> made me feel like, hey, there's hope there. There's, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that can do something. Do you remember when you kind of <laughs> first started pursuing journalism and getting things published? <clears throat> well. Um, I was I, I wrote for the college paper a little bit. I interviewed uh, Ralph Waite from wow. from, from uh, the Waltons. He was <laughs> a super nice guy. Um, <clears throat> for the but, college paper. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was L.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but then, <laughs> then I was uh, in college, graduate school. Then um, years later, and I had a girlfriend, and her mother-in-law asked me, well, "How are you going to make a living?" And I said, "Well, I don't know." And she said, why don't you try journalism? Another pivotal moment. <laughs> and I was like, hey, that's a good idea. And uh, so she she had written for a prison magazine. So wow. I wrote a piece for that prison magazine. And the rest is history. Do you remember what it was about? Or? It was about a bunch of rich guys trying to raise money for some prison project. It wasn't very interesting except for I got to travel out of town and, and like sit down in some hunting lodge with a bunch of rich guys. And that sounds interesting enough. I learned stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. I loved reporting from the beginning. You you had that kind of vag like you said you kind of had that vagabond um college tour. You kind of did you ever finish or um well, I I, I got a master's degree. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was in a doctoral program, but I dropped out. Really? You to pursue this prison magazine. <laughs> what were you going to do your doctorate in? Uh, it was a 20 Probably twenty uh, war war World War Two era novels, really something like that. Or Heming uh, I was thinking about uh, Melville too. Uh, I was big into Melville just before I dropped out. So you complete um, Columbia, you drop out of that or whatever. How do you end up in Albuquerque to get your? Is that your first reporting job? Yeah, my first like legit reporting job. Uh, and I, a friend of mine had been offered the job and turned it down. And I started going after that. I was writing to them and were you freelancing in New York? Or? Yeah, I was freelancing in different for different publications i had a piece of the voice uh wow. w waiting in the voice for years and i was like they'd accepted it and wouldn't print it and i was like i need that clip uh was but it finally, like a, a reported story uh yeah yeah uh, uh, uh but anyway uh I, the I, I just hounded the people in albuquerque until they finally gave me the job or gave me a tryout they gave me a two-week tryout so you went out there you live in a hotel or something Something like that. I don't even remember where I stayed. I must have stayed in a hotel. But then I, I, I wrote for about five days, and they said, okay, you got the job. Wow. That was good. That's good. What, what year was it? Um, it was uh, 82 or 3 or 4. Like 84. The, world, the world's 84. like a Coen Brothers movie, right, back then over there? Or? It was, I loved that in New Mexico. It was a great place to be a police reporter. There were all kinds of colorful crimes and um Desperados and just uh, I like the small time crimes. I like. Were you a 
crime reporter on the beat? That was my beat. Wow. Yeah, I showed up at the police department at 5 a.m. to read the blotter <laughs> uh, under the supervision of the blotter uh, lady. What um, what stories kind of resonate or stand out from that era? You know, any anything that you still think about or tell your kids about or. I, I remember the guy who tried to steal presents for his uh, for Christmas for his kids and got arrested. Wow. And so I went to the house and they were, you know, a Christmas tree with no presents underneath it and all sad story. Woman who tried to rob a bank to pay over pay off her her, her boyfriend's debts uh, with a with a lipstick tube. <laughs> <laughs> a, a one-legged prostitute uh, who, like, specialized in older guys, and she was a fundamentalist Christian. She no said, way. In the Bible, it says you cannot offend the Lord through the flesh, or something like that. Wow. She had a. Everybody has a reason, and that was, that was a, a, a you know, an interesting thing to learn. I remember uh, reading the interview that accompanies the book. Um, you said you were making $22,000 a year. Oh, God, yeah, I was. Which is funny because that's how much I made at my first magazine job. <laughs> 20 years later. 25 years later. Uh, so, so that's the standard. There. I don't, you know what's so crazy? Um, I think when you're a writer and you only make that much, your world is so much more simple. I think maybe, <clears> like, you're, you know, you're always engaged in something kind of exciting. So it kind of, I don't want to say, mm. it take, nothing takes the place of money. But you're always in something kind of exciting, so you, I don't. You feel the financial squeeze, but you also, you know, you get invited to cool parties too. <laughs> yeah, that happens especially when you move to Hollywood. But no, I mean, it was super fun. I had a great time. I loved the newsroom and uh, had, you know, had mentors who helped me out and. Um, uh, it was. It was actually in retrospect. It was probably like the funnest job yeah you know pull cop reporting in a sm relatively like small but lively town <laughs> have you ever been back there oh yeah i was just there oh, really yeah my daughter lives in uh north of taos so i was i oh. was just visiting her that's cool and then you eventually made your way out to la to work is the daily news still around la daily news i think so maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, again, another friend was offered a job and turned it down. That's how I make most of my moves. And uh, and uh, so I went out there to cover film, which I had no experience aside from seeing a lot of movies. And now I've seen you I've seen you kind of say film and used it. But to clarify for our audience, this is like the film industry or just the Hollywood scene. Or It was both. It was like <clears throat> so there was some reviewing. I did some reviewing. And then the rest of it was interviews, Hollywood people, actors. Uh, and uh, you know it was pretty open you could do anything you wanted it did like the the wild animal farm that has lions north of the city that kind of stuff you know it was like fun yeah and I got Featuring. to interview <clears throat> I got to interview a lot of people that I wanted to do I, so I got uh, I did Pedro Almodovar off, wow. of, off of his third or, third or fourth American movie I think it was his second or third American movie so he was he wasn't really a well known person but wow, it was a cool thing to do. What, uh, just kind of for other writers, uh, John, you have so many fantastic stories. There's, I, I don't want to, uh, some of these stories were probably written right around the time I was born. That's how long you're doing it. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to age you. Oh my God. But what I wanted to ask you, what I wanted to ask you was, is you, you've done it for so long. We, we probably have a couple of MFA students who listen to our podcast. How, how much has writing been a journey for you? Do you, are you one of those people? Can you 
can you see where you got better in your own work? Like, oh yeah, uh, turning points for you. It, well, it was totally a journey because at first I was just trying to make a living as uh, you know doing this because I didn't know what else to do really, and I had you know I was writing short stories and publishing a few of them and stuff, and so, so. Um, <clears throat> So at first it was just I was just trying to write put on the clothes of the newspaper basically you know and also try trying to make a joke once in a while and stuff like that push the envelope a little bit but <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about the envelope I was just like can I get Auto de Santa Fe into this story about burning a big statue in Santa Fe? Then I, like I had read John Didion and stuff, but I hadn't read her as a journalist. And I started reading more in journalism and seeing like, you know, George Orwell, the classics, and going, oh my God, you can really do something with this. And But I was never a reader of like Rolling Stone or, you know, I would read political stuff. I would read New New Republic and all that, but I wasn't a fan of long form journalism particularly. Wow. But then I started to discover what was there and the riches and some, again, stuff I had read but hadn't really thought of, oh, this is something you can do, you know. So I started, so then I started wanting to do more than newspapers. I wanted to try magazines. I tried some long-form newspaper stuff, but uh, it's still very constrained in style. Because uh, when you're talking about a long-form news, again, I don't know what long-form was back when you were working at it, but probably today a long-form newspaper story is like 2,200 words. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, something like that. I mean, you could do a series, which I did a couple of, but, you know, it was still within the newspaper style, and the newspaper paper style is very formulaic, uh, except for, for some reason, in the sports <laughs> pages. Right, right, you know? right, right. <laughs> so, so I started wanting to do that, and, I, and a friend of mine once again got a job at, uh, at another place, at Premier Magazine, which had just opened up, and I was covering the film industry, so I started freelancing pieces to them. And, and right away, they wanted more of a written thing, you know? So you were focusing more on making something happen on the page with a beginning and an ending and, you know, flows and a flow and some style and all that. But then... <clears throat> After a couple of years, the, so I started doing the bigger features and all that, but I was still writing fairly conventionally. Um, and then um, I did a story about this, uh, an assistant at the Cannes Film Festival, and that was sort of a breakthrough piece for me. I wanted to ask you about that because in this interview that you do with Mike Sager here in the book, you mention a couple of stories that I wish was in the book. Yeah. And, 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 and <laughs> well, this is just crime stories. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's um, in, an you know, in the interview that accompanies uh, Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan, you say that uh, some early features includes one on a ruthless young screenwriter pushing a sentimental script. What was Oof. that about? I don't even want to bring that up. <laughs> I, I feel sorry. I feel bad I <laughs> slaughtered that guy at the beginning of his career. Uh, uh, it was it was about this guy who had written a script about his hometown and all his buds, and I happened to be at a film festival, and one of his buds had a little short film in the festival, and I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, you're a friend of Tony's, right? And he goes, Tony, you know, and he was like, "Don't I, I'm not going to talk about that guy." And I was like, "What?" And then I met, I knew this director who had also worked with him. And he was like, "Tony, that fucking guy." You know? <laughs> Can I say that? Anyway, that those two guys made me think, "What's up with this?" And I, I tracked down the director and got his story, and it was basically like everything, everything sentimental and sweet and loving. He had s basically uh, betrayed and the 
guy who started out writing with him was also very bitter because he was his name was cut out of the credits and it was a story of Hollywood ambition. I'd love to read that. Like I would love to if it's out there, I'll have to try and find it. I'm sure you can Google it. And then there's the one about the wild man producer. Is that a different person? Who oh yeah, Joel Silver. Wow. Right. What was what was the story with him? Uh, well, that was a fun story. That was another one of my first stories before I sort of stretched out a little bit. But he um, he wouldn't do an interview, and so I interviewed everybody in Hollywood who hated him, which was a lot of people. Uh, wow. And uh, he got really mad about it. And, like, Did he sue you? Called no. He called me and yelled at me, and then he made like he tried to make he, friend of you. He, became, he befriended me and sucked me into his dark world. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still friends with him? Uh, I, we were friendly when we last spoke, but that was a long, long time ago. And and you said you considered that kind of your your breakthrough, huh? No, no. It was his assistant who was my breakthrough just because it was a trivial subject and I didn't feel like there was a lot of weight on it. Really? Uh, and uh, it was the Cannes Film Festival and there was lots of energy you know every night went till 4 a.m and you and uh there were lots of parties and and lots of fringe characters and wildness and and i wanted to try to capture that feeling and i also didn't feel like anybody was paying that much that close attention because i was just writing about an assistant i wasn't writing about anybody important um, and so that sort of just unleashed the energy. And I was frustrated at that point. I'd been at the magazine for three years. And that's what we were talking earlier about, like you were saying about style and, and, and magazine style writing, long-form journalism. And I, I think, like, you do have to get, or at least unless you are born to that in some way, like Cameron Crowe, right. you, you have to get frustrated with the formulaic kind of approach, uh, or at least that that normative gray voice of, of, of ordinary journalism and sort of say, like, how can I sort of jazz this up? Because you get when, when you get frustrated, you're like, you've already considered a lot of things and rejected them. So at some point, you get, ta you get takeoff momentum. So to clarify, Silver's assistant, he was quitting his job. What was his? Well, he, he was a kid, Alan, and he was 25, and he had risen through the Hollywood ranks since college, three years, right? And uh, his relationship with Joel Silver was a little bit tormented, and he had met these, these, these um, Middle Eastern guys who had a lot of money, <laughs> and they wanted to make B-movies. And he thought, you know, the Joel Silver lethal weapon kind of thing was B-movies. And so he was coming out of that thing and he was tr going to try to create himself as a mini Joel. Uh, and they had this movie that they'd made with this action star. Uh, and I went, so it, when I was doing Joel, he confessed to me on the beach that he had this plot to create, make his own movie and escape Joel. And... Uh, and become somebody. And I said, oh, that sounds like a cool story. I'll That's the guy, that. Alan. Alan. So I would go to the set of his movie and- What was the name of the movie? Nemesis was the name of the movie. So we went. So that's the movie Alan was taking to Cannes. So he find, he over the course of that year he made it. I went and visited him at various locations and stuff and got to know Jean, uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, substitute, Olivier Grunet, who was a, who was a lovely guy. 
Um, and and so then we went to Cannes, and by this time I knew these guys. I knew the Arab guys. I, you know, yeah, it yeah. was a whole like scene. <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a really interesting piece. Like that that seems like you need a follow up. You know. Well, the cool thing about Cannes is I didn't realize until I got there is that there's the Cannes, and then there's this whole sort of other level of can that is I don't want to say rug merchant just because they're Arab guys <laughs> but, uh, but I mean it's B movies and it's 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 um, you know Sylvester Stallone's brother is the star right, right, you know, right. There's, uh, there's a lot of very familiar last names but, but the first names do yeah, not yeah, yeah. that's interesting and uh, like um, it's funny it's a, it, see I like that kind of louche world uh, and I don't see why editors hate it, but they generally do. But Susan Line, the beloved, my beloved editor at Premier, really let me off the leash a lot. Well, I think that's where the interesting stories happen. Um, I don't like any story where you can kind of go in knowing essentially where it could go. I, li- I like the story where you know, the writer didn't know where it was going to go, mm-hmm. you know, until mm-hmm. the end. Um, you worked at GQ. Was that for? Were you on? God, was I at GQ? <laughs> were, were you on staff there? Or you just, oh yeah, I wrote some pieces for GQ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 no, I just wrote some pieces for them. And and Esquire, were you on? I was there for eighteen years. Yeah, Esquire. I was a regular dude. You were one of the regular guys there. Writer, yeah, yeah. writer at large. Yeah, yeah. But in this book, uh, only the title story is actually from Esquire. It really? Is that true? Uh, just one, uh, and then... Um, but most of them were, were like started at Esquire and rejected by them. Think so? <laughs> no, no. Um, at least a couple. You, But then uh, the book opens with this fantastic story, Death of a Small Timer, which was actually published in the Columbia Journal yeah. in 2010. Uh, how did you How did you find that story? You told me a little bit before, but just take us through. Essentially, it's about... Uh, an agent in Hollywood, right? That had his own that had his own business, and essentially these were dirty movies or some type of sex not, modeling, not porn, but bondage and stuff. Probably like soft that. core yeah. type of a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how did you? To me, that's he had a dungeon in his studio. I believe, guy, you know, a pr- prison cell. You know, you. <laughs> I, I I I I've got to be honest. I find that that. I especially we're coming up on a time now where there's a lot of looking back on that stuff and there's got I I am I am really so glad to have you here today John H Richardson who's with us here today on WXEI it's I got to be honest that world of B movies um I don't know why but it fascinates the hell out of me and I have a notebook not this notebook in front of me but I have a notebook where I have Maybe half a dozen stories that nobody will ever publish, mm. like that came out of my own research of B movies. I'm the type of guy that I love to find the movie that's on YouTube for free now because who would ever pay for this? And mm-hmm. somebody just wants to show their grandkid that they were in it 35 years ago, you know <laughs> what I mean? And I spend more time Googling what happened to the characters. And the actors in the well, movie. You're lucky you can do that now. You can find out about these mysteries. And the reality is, you've done all that work in in this book in an era where there was most of it in an era where there was no internet or limited mm. what you could find on the internet. It True. starts out with this fantastic book, Death of a. Uh, pardon me. It starts out with this fantastic um, story called Death of a Small Timer about this guy. How how did you find the story? So this B movie actress I named uh, I knew named Jewel told me 
about this old guy who was once her agent and was the agent for Demi Moore when she first came to town as an 18-year-old or whatever, and <clears throat> that he was this kind of sweet, kind of sinister <laughs> old guy who w looked out for some of them and some of them had less warm feelings, but that he was a real good story, real colorful. He had a storefront um, agency on Santa Monica Boulevard, and she said, "Go in there, t you know, talk to him, tell him you're a photographer." Because I was doing a lot of photography then, and and uh, he'll show you Demi Moore's first pictures. His, he takes the girls into the back, the girls, and takes their nude pictures, and then uses that as his thing. That's his that's his routine. So I did as instructed, except for uh, yeah, I, I, I did pretty much as instructed, and he. <coughs> Uh, he, you know, it was okay. It was an interesting little bit of color, I just thought, but my editor wouldn't go for it. And so I just forgot about it. And a year later, he turned up dead. My Jewel calls me up and says, so all these women who worked for him, who were his models, are now trying to find out who killed him because the police aren't investigating. Wow. So I was like, I, I got to do that. That sounds too good. What do you, I mean. Of course, but my editor turned it down again. So I went out anyway. I think he, let, he gave me money to go out, but didn't promise to publish it. And then he wouldn't publish it when I wrote it. So I wrote it a couple more times, still wouldn't publish it, and I just forgot about it in the drawer until the kid from Columbia called me up and said, you got anything in a drawer? Wow. A kid from, he, he asked you if you had anything in a drawer? She, well, she, she did. Yeah, wow. she was like an undergraduate, and she was editing the magazine there. That's amazing. Yeah, so. And I'm really glad that that story saw the light of day, because if if – if you read it, it's a very, how can I say it? It's void of these weird factoids, and it's more, like, I, I don't, correct me, you don't really go into, like, where the guy was born, and I don't think you got that stuff, did you? Like, where he was born, where nah, it, what not, his parents. not really about that. It's, no, like, I, it's about the world. Like, you know, there's all these small-time agents and models and strippers and a uh, woman who makes wrestling movies. Well, that's the and, thing that I was going to, that's the thing that I was going to say. It's, it's, even though there aren't those, this weird, you know, there aren't those biographical nut gra you know, graphs in there, I can see every room that's being described in the story, and I can I can smell the cigarette smoke, and, and it, I can. And it's a world people don't know about or see, except for you know of Mike Sager's great story, right, you right. know, uh, that became uh, about John Holmes, yeah, the yeah. devil and John Holmes, that, right, uh, which is a fantastic story, which became Boogie Nights. Yes, but but I can tell you that this this that how what was his last name? How um, Gathu. Yeah, his story. Um, it, it was like right out of a, a you know e true Hollywood story. It had that I could I could almost see the old cars that might have been outside his storefront in that era. It was just so perfectly painted, and I I really enjoy stories like that, and I think the readers will too. You if you find that story in Not uh, Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan, which is out now um, by Neotex, the Sager Group, and the Stax Reader, wh whoever's involved here. Um, it's about that portrait of the the scene and the people that exist in it and it leads me it's in a special category of the stories that i most like i'm most interested in stories about how people live their lives that's what i'm most interested in i'm not really interested in it could be anything you know i, I recently wrote a story for newsday about um disabled veterans who get together and play hockey 
and share their kind of experience. Mm -hmm. it, it could be that simple mm -hmm. for me, and it could go, it could go right up to the guy who has the dungeon in his basement to, to, <laughs> to you know to do these. I these. love those stories, and and every now and then in those stories you get like a little gift of plot. You yeah. know, so I have a little murder mystery in the heart. There's a little bit. thing, and and then you get his his. His girlfriend comes in at the end and lays down some cold Hollywood truth. Uh, I, that's great. I, I think, you know. Uh, what do you think happened to him? I think he killed himself. Yeah. 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 But, I, but it was one of those rational suicides. You know, like I'm, I'm getting sick. I'm not going to he might have had AIDS or something? No. 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 Just like he, he probably thought he didn't have much time to go and he might as well go out on a good, uh, you know, on, with he wanted to be in control. He was hiding his club foot his whole life and all that stuff. But that's what I love. I love those details and, and what makes people. Another story that didn't get into it is I did the guy who was the, started open carry texas he's most responsible for bringing us open carry in texas wow. than any other guy and i really got along with him he was very vulnerable and honest and told you know he had his crazy ideas i think crazy but okay i had one great moment of plot when they were protesting for open carry and a guy came across the street and he was for concealed carry, and he had his concealed weapon, and he was, like, pulling it out, and I thought I was going to be in the middle of a gunshot. A shootout. They, were, they, were, they had a standoff, and he, the, you know, they were all, <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is a gift from the gods for my story. But then at the same time, it was like I didn't feel like I had gotten anywhere. I hadn't gotten what I needed from him, and so we went shooting. He, I asked him to teach me to shoot or to show me what it w did for him and to explain it to me. And that's when the story came to life because, you know, there's, a, there's always something, like with the Gathu story, you, it turns a different way. Yeah. But yeah, you want to try to be in there with all the real life and then hopefully get a little, f t some twists. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to wait it out. <laughs> then, then after that, that great story, uh, Death of a Small Timer, there's the story about El Gringo Loco. Oh, yeah. And, let me ask you, uh, like I, it's one I, I was really trying to wrap my head around. What what compelled you to write that story? You know, I mean, what, what how did you get onto that one? Uh, my uh, 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 he had written he was trying to write his story, and my agent gave, showed me his story and said, you know, he can't write. <laughs> I don't want to say that. He's a sweet guy. I still talk to him a lot. Uh, El Gringo Loco. Yeah, 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 yeah. He came out to New York last year. We hung out. Um, but, you know, it was a fantastic story in a way. Uh, he, he was a high school and college football player. He took, he got, you know, injured and started taking narcotics, you know, uh, oxycodone and stuff. He was a, a coach and his mom, by that time he was a coach in a high school and he was a good, good sweet guy. And his mom said, you know, you should dry out. Uh, why don't you go to Mexico and teach English for a while and dry out? <laughs> so he, Guadalajara, it's like he immediately it. got into the party scene and started selling uh, ecstasy for, for what turned out to be a member of the Sinaloa Cartel. So he got deeper into it. He had his network and all of this and um, got arrested and all that. So it's only a ten-year-old story, huh? Yeah. So, so it was. So basically, it was like, well, this is like an interesting story that happened to you, but you know, 
you want to go back and introduce me to the cartel? <laughs> and he was go- he wanted to go back, so so we went back and hung out with uh, Raul the hitman, and uh, and it was a, 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 quite a trip. And that was a that that was a Playboy story that must have had a huge budget to do that one. It must have what? Must have had a huge budget to do that one. No, not really. Mm-hmm. Trip to Guadalajara. Yeah, uh, probably fine. You know, uh, hotel and uh, but but again. Uh, he was he he was had he's a genuine guy and he he's actually a um, uh, responsible citizen now and uh, all cl- clean and everything but he he uh he also had like a real loyalty to the to the revolutionary criminal world and and sort of longs for it to this day even wow. though even though he's really glad he's out of it and are you i wanted to ask you something you are you a big you a big note taker or recorder? Oh hell yeah! Yeah, you're big on yeah. notes and record. Because some guys aren't. I run the recorder. I introduce it fast, and I try Me to. Too. I try to normalize it so that they pretend it's not it's there. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but I also like talk to my tape recorder. Sometimes I do make them know, aware that it's there. I don't want to like sneak anything. No, I know what you mean. Especially not the people I uh, you know because I'm with them. I don't, want, I, I don't want people to stare true. at it the whole time, which is what I try and avoid. You know what I mean? It's like the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the looking down at the tape recorder a hundred times. But oh, when you're with people for weeks at a time, they get used to you turning it on and off, and they, you know, depending on their level of paranoia, they become aware more yeah. or less aware of it. There. And sometimes they 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 got they save something up for when you when you bring that recorder that's true, out. That's true too. That's true. Because there are some, and very famously, one of your Esquire colleagues, uh, Tom Janot, who does not really take maybe he takes notes but he doesn't record anything well you know some people are are less dialogue uh driven than others and i i i could probably write a whole story just in found dialogue you know uh, because i like the dialogue and it brings people to life and i don't need to be the person saying the thing in fact i prefer the scene to do the work you know Um, and you do that so often and and um there's, but there's there's places where you use first person where it's so appropriate and it's not like outside of the, it doesn't feel you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it's taking over the whole story um, not guilty by reason of Afghanistan the, the book's title story it's just an intense tale of broken friendships and the, the, the worst type of end to any relationship uh, being dismembered yeah, and buried in a shallow pit <laughs> yeah uh, the, you know kind of the um this 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 kind of disintegration of this uh, relationship between two filmmakers that leads to murder mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, how did you come? How did you come in contact with that story? God, I forget. I think that might have been Mark Warren, my editor at Esquire. Fantastic editor. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, guy. one of the best that ever lived, probably. Yeah, I did all my all, all my pieces. For really? Him. Did you yeah. work with him? Yeah, he's yeah. the best. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, that was. Uh, that it was funny how that story was, it was just sort of everything came to you came to me like everybody agreed to talk eventually uh and i got into the prison and all of that but um uh essentially these two filmmakers uh nathan powell and the other one was J- jaweed weisel that's right uh they were making a film that dealt with there was Islamic themes in there and 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 stuff like that. Ultimately, Nathan Powell 
killed Wiesel and accused him of anti-American type of sentiment and activities, and which he claims led to, I guess, guess was trying to claim it led to his temporary insanity into killing him. What was your, what was your take on the whole thing? <clears throat> well, he was a, tr- a disturbing person to meet. I've met a lot of prisoners uh, over the years, and a few of them have been totally tweaked out, if you know what I mean. And he was one of them. I, I wouldn't want to be in a cell with the guy. Wow. Uh, at, you know, and it's hard to know why somebody is like that. I mean, I, I, I met a guy who was in prison for 40 years who was innocent, and he was cr- crazy violent in his 20s. He said, I went through my adolescence in prison, basically, so I was a nut for a while because I was in prison yeah. <laughs> and an adolescent. But... Um, but yeah, he was a disturbing guy, and his story was crazy, and he definitely had some kind of breakdown, I would say, you know, you chop somebody up and all of that. But And you see it. I mean, the golden for me was sometimes you're depending so much on interviews and meeting people and setting the scene and blah, 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 and dialogue. But there it was the arrest report. My God, when I read that stuff, I just could not believe you know, the cops stopped him, and he had the body in pieces in, in the boxes in the back, and he's spinning these lies. Opening like scene of the Stephen King movie or something. Second by second. It's like, uh, I was going to uh, the bathroom. Oh, no, I was going to bury. You know, yeah. It's like, uh, I was going to, you know, oh, no, it was uh, an accident. Oh, and you're just like, he's so paralyzed and desperate and disassociated that, uh, yeah, it was a killer scene. And I thought that... Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. I felt sorry for his wife. You know, was trying to be loyal and everything. Um, right. And, and the Muslim community part of his his the equation were really bitter and angry, uh, which I could understand why they would be. But they were just caring. You know, really not pleasant to be around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, it, it it in the end it seemed just like a nasty type of defense he was putting up. You know. Oh yeah. Well, you know, he's guilty as hell and all of that. Uh, uh, but you know, that said, I think there was. I mean, he, he the elements that his homicidal man m- madness fascinate, fa- you know, fastened on were not completely illegitimate. He had these paranoid delusions about nine eleven. He lived in Lower Man, in you know, with a view of Lower Manhattan. It wasn't. He wasn't alone in that. Yeah. You know, so there's a... He was sincerely disturbed. I mean, yeah. you know, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. And then in the... in the uh, That that story, the title story, is followed by really my favorite story uh, in the whole book. I, I, I can't say enough. Um, you know, I, I think that some people... Um, sometimes in academic institutions, sometimes in other places, uh, they don't really know what, like, journalism and long-form journal and how a well-reported story could be as out of this world as anything that's made up or anything that's maybe uh, art. You know what I mean? And this is one of the most fantastical um mind-blowing stories that I've ever read. So essentially, this story is another Hollywood tale from John H. Richardson, who's here with us today on WXCI, about 
this completely fraudulent would-be Hollywood actor, producer, financer, con man uh, type of a guy by the name of Sonny Gibson who uh, conveniently created a totally fictitious uh, image of himself as a mafia member. Mafia kingpin. It was unbelievable. He wrote a biography, was published, he was reviewed. Um, I, I, I told you this before. There's no world... I, we already discussed that my, my favorite stories are about how people live their life. This guy is choosing to live his life in the craziest... Like, I can't even see the point after a while. <laughs> like, what's the point of this? You might as well just take the money and run and go... Well, you know, interesting... Fame answer. is a hell I, of a drug. I feel like this... Is, I'm coming off sleazy. These are my crime stories. But, you know, this is a guy who pretended to have a 21-inch penis. Right. And, well, this isn't in the story, but apparently he would rather use the plastic penis than actually have contact. Wow. Yeah. That, that's the demand. That's, no, that's it. There is a little snapshot in here, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, where it says that he was actually using this white plastic prosthesis of some type while engaging in, in sexual activity. So it, it did seem pretty bizarre. But the, the list of things that this guy did to lie, at one time he tells somebody that he's Mel Gibson's brother. He claimed to be Jackie Onassis's gigolo. Right. In print. Mafia gigolo <laughs> and hitman. It was all... He had $20 million on an island. And people... This, this, this is, again, it's kind of like the Halgathu story. It's a kind of a world of, like, Hollywood below the level of A-movies. And there's there's... In this world, there's old ladies with a million bucks in the bank who will give it to the right guy f who showed up at their church, want church wanting to make a movie about the farmland right. and stuff like that. Which is part of the story. It's amazing. And, and I sat there with that woman. Her husband was dying in a hospital bed, and she had given this guy a million bucks. Uh, that was and oh. that was the other woman, right? The woman with the two sons. Yes, yes. And, the son, and she almost a million dollars yeah. she gave this guy. It's, uh, 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 and there were, and then you know filmmakers who worked for him and wanted to believe that they were going to get paid for their cinematography fee. <laughs> I found I found a few things. A guy who let his farm get burned down. Right. His, his cornfield to got make born, this movie. burned down. Five thousand bucks worth of corn for like a movie. He claimed to make, you know, it is the producers, shot on video for like 10000 bucks, <laughs> and then, oh, it didn't get a release. Right, right, Thanks right. for the money. Oh, my God. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so fascinated by stories like this because I, you know, I, I, outside of, of my writing and uh, my, my studying in the MFA program here, I do a little charity work. We have a charity ice hockey tournament. You know, nice. it's sometimes impossible to get people to give us a hundred bucks. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes you, you're like, you're, yeah. you're asking somebody who owns a business to give a hundred dollars for a cancer and men's suicide charity event. And you're getting a sideways look. Mm -hmm. But then you read a, a story by John H. Richardson where people are literally throwing this guy two hundred thousand dollars. And the, the truth is, it's the promise of celebrity mm -hmm. that people are looking for. It's not it has nothing to. The money is on when you're when you're seeking celebrity or attention. I think the money's no object. You see well, it in, as the director of his movie said, uh, "You know better, but you still go for the fried ice cream." That's the thing, <laughs> you know. And and you're saying to yourself, "Wow, like it's 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 this world that." Um,
people feel like somebody will want to take their picture afterwards. Well, yeah. You know, it's like, hey, you know, if I put money into this movie and it does halfway well, I'll get my picture included in the party pics of Los Angeles Magazine or something. Well, like. and also, like, I mean, he was hitting churches. He was getting people with good feeling, good intentions, right. you know, maybe a little vanity in it, but also, you know, wanting to help the oppressed and stuff. He was, he was... He was a dark character. I mean, he did he did bad things after that story, and you know, God knows he'll probably. I hope he doesn't hear this. Is he still alive? <laughs> I probably. Yeah. He wasn't that old. Um, you know what was? Uh, uh, it's it's funny because when you see somebody go through those great lengths to deceive people, you wonder if they could if you could get away with what he was doing today in 2023 if. Sometimes I think you could. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, there's vulnerable people, you know. I had... Um, they go after these, you know, people who are in crisis or... Not not the best example of my friends, but I, I knew a guy from Queens who lived not far from my childhood home, and he was very, very much like this, this person, uh, Sonny Gibson, that you're describing in the story. He would go... His scheme was he would go around saying that he was going to start a hip-hop label, a mm -hmm. record label. But it was it was crazy. He was renting office space, and he had a secretary, and he mm. had a business plan that was about 10 or 15 years outdated. And he was sending it around. And, and yeah, like, I don't want to... There's not too much I'm giving away here, and I'm sure he won't <laughs> hear the show. But, yeah, some doctor in Canada gave him over $200,000 wow. one time wow. to start this right and you say to yourself if I had approached this guy and I was on the street and I needed $20 for gas you wouldn't have gotten probably it. wouldn't yeah. have gotten it you yeah. know what I mean? and it's 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 and I think that there's people who are um people who very much go asking for this type of stuff sometimes I mean the, the one woman who who gave away all her family's money to these people I mean I wonder if there was anything sexual going on there there must have been you mm -hmm. know what I mean mm -hmm. like what the because that level of entanglement... I, I think there was probably, a, a, you know, his flirtation. She was older, not that that discounts it, but I think it was more it was more like uh, romantic than sexual. Right. Uh, I don't think, you know, with her husband in the hospital, I don't think so. Not the way she was. But you never know. But, you know... I, I like these these stories. Uh, some of them are, are you know more straightforward crime stories, and some of them are are, are you know character stories They're like great. that. But but you know I think uh, uh, you try to write the world that you're in, and I do. I love Lush, and I love I love those kinds of in in between worlds because I'm a third culture kid, and so being like not quite a Hollywood star, being like a not even a B star, and struggling with that, I can sort of relate to that and all that. Um, I ended up doing a lot more stories. So, in, and in Hollywood, that B world is just not written about. Right. It's, you know, I did B movie actresses, and I did the 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 um the um american film marketplace which is all these f b movie filmmakers from all over the world is very colorful scene it's just as valid to me as hollywood is the films aren't good but so are mo neither are most hollywood films but it's a culture i want to ask you two questions before you went to la were you do you consider yourself a movie guy you like going to the theater i like you like art films you know? yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> godfather yeah uh, Truffaut, you know that kind of stuff. I right, was right. A typical snob, but 
you know, I mean, everybody liked uh, liked drive-in kind of movies in, mm. in, in the 80s and 70s and yeah. all that. So, I mean, there, were, there was already a sense. I mean, Pauline Kael had been around for a while, so there was a sense trash gave me a taste for art or art gave me a taste for trash or something yeah. like that, 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 that the whole... But the idea of the whole world being interesting, that doesn't take a rocket science. Right. But I think most people who cover Hollywood are celebrity-oriented or a direct... Business-oriented, uh, and I just wasn't for some reason. You were kind of people-oriented, yeah. yeah. And, and I liked, uh, like, my first stories were about uh, uh, foley artists, a woman who like made sounds with her shoes. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and she had all these different shoes for all the different sounds that she needed to make. Businesswoman. This is for premiere. Yeah, she had slut shoes. She had businesswoman <laughs> shoes, and they didn't look anything like what they actually were. That's uh, amazing. But they sounded that way, and I, I just love that kind of stuff. That's yeah. amazing. No, it's a cool job to have, for sure. Um, what what I wanted to ask you is, um, one thing we skipped over, though, uh, Nathan Powell from that, that Afghan story, he only did 15 years, and he should be out now. Hey, geez, really? God. Did, did he get out? You know? I hope he got better. Yeah. Because it, it, it uh, that was a funny thing that I caught at the end that he really pleaded down to almost nothing. I mean, for, well, 15 years is not nothing. Well, speaking as for having, a pretty red handed murder, I mean, you know. that, well, red handed, pretty literally, I think. Totally. But not to laugh, but. Uh, but uh, so yeah, 15 years is a long time. People are very cavalier about prison sentences. Ah, you should do 10 years. God, man. A year, it's a, a long time. A week in prison is a long oh, time. Oh, I believe it. Um, the But just with, with the grifter story, the Sonny Gibson type of a thing, you never really interview him. You make phone contact with him, yeah, right? Do you yeah. ask him any questions, or he's just he 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 gave me uh, agreed to an interview, and I went, and then they got like, "What are you doing here?" kind of thing. It was some kind of mistake or game. Was he there? But I ended up speaking to him extensively uh, at my deposition when he sued me and lost. But and I'm sure I don't know how much money he had, but he was spending like a hundred grand or something, fifty grand, the just premiere? to hassle me. Yeah, yeah. He because there was no way. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guy was irrelevant pretty much at that point. Did did that was the only time you ever saw him in the flesh, though, huh? Face to face. Yeah. Wow. And also the plastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Un- unbelievable. He followed me into the bathroom. Really? Yeah. And w- did he say anything to you? No, but uh, he made sure I saw what, you know. <laughs> no, nah, I, I didn't see his plastic, but <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw it inside his pants. He was, like, swinging it around. Come on. Yeah. That's crazy. The guy's absolutely nuts. I think one of the funniest. But he's, you know, very few. I've done a lot of bad people and murderers and stuff, but they're not vile. But he was a vile guy. Yeah. I don't really like writing about that. It was just so insane that uh but i'd much rather write about people i admire or or, or feel have souls and they're complex no but you know what um it's a caution in some ways it's a cautionary tale about what what you get into when you try and backdoor your way into hollywood or you try and kind of leech on because there's you know again every you know I, we have something on this show. It was actually discussed a couple of episodes ago with a, a writer you may or may not know. He's a James Patterson collaborator named Michael Ledwidge. And I brought up to Mike that um, he's got maybe 20 books or something like that mm-hmm. over that, uh, 20 novels. 
and Reed Farrell Coleman. I don't know if you know him, the crime writer. He he was also a guest on the show. Mm -hmm. He's also got over twenty books, like mm -hmm. thirty books or something like that. Um, Lawrence Block, prolific crime 100 writer. Hundred books. <laughs> probably yeah. a, probably a hundred books, but like. 57 that we really know about you know what i mean <laughs> there's probably he probably did do 100 yeah, under different names incredible he, he wrote a book that takes place in this city that he completely forgot about that i <laughs> that i told him about that's hilarious yeah yeah and uh the city of danbury here and and uh, of all of those writers prolific you know kind of long-standing professionals there's one movie one movie really all those guys that's a hundred some odd novels published. I'm surprised, especially with Lawrence Block. Numerous bestsellers. There's only one, a, a Walk Among the Tombstones. With well, there's actually uh -huh. two. There's a Walk Among the Tombstones, which is as close to the to the book as you pro probably could be for a movie. And then he had one that they completely ruined. Uh, Eight Million Ways to Die. Oh, right. right. So he, he's actually had a couple of movies, but none of the, Eight Million Ways to Die got moved to L.A. Mm. I mean, it, he's like the most prolific New York crime writer, and they moved the book to L.A. It didn't make any sense. And then I think, so basically three movies, they're all Lawrence Blocks. How's that process been for you through the years? You've written, everybody loves these true crime stories. They're, the last 30 years, I think we've heard, based on a true story more than mm. anything, it's probably been written on movie posters more than anything what's your experience been with hollywood being that you were basically a hollywood guy for almost 15 years yeah well uh i optioned a bunch of them and uh some of them have gotten the screenplay stages but the first one that's actually hit the screen is is going to be is called sing sing it's going to be at can this uh, not can the toronto film festival next month uh, in the main competition, and it's a really good movie. It's about prisoners putting on a musical at Sing Sing, wow. which I wrote for Esquire, uh, a maximum security comedy. <laughs> yeah, a, that's amazing. What do you remember about doing that story? Oh, God, it's very vivid because I had to go into Sing Sing one, every week. Like on Were you a, living a, in Katona? I was or? living in Katona. I went in there every week for about two or three months, two months probably, uh, to watch rehearsals auditions, rehearsals, the whole thing, and then the final production, which is at the Sing Sing Theater. It was a really moving thing and really, uh, f you know, fascinating. It was cool because it was focused on them doing something. So I was really just sitting there with my notepad. I didn't interview them, you know. I mean, I did, but, uh, but it wasn't about that. It was about them rehearsing this show and putting it on under these grim conditions. Um, and... Uh, the show, seeing the sh seeing them up on stage, in costume, uh, doing stupid stuff, and like wearing <laughs> wearing grass skirts and things must have been hysterical. It was it was it was great, and it was really moving. And the cool thing about the movie is the one of the guys who was in the movie is the co-star. Uh, I mean, one of the guys who was in the prison is now the co-star of the movie. Wow! And a couple of the other characters were in the prison and they're in the movie now. That's too. amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the guys who made it were really. They went into prisons and they spent a lot of time with the prisoners and with the guy who was the director of the of the play, um, and uh, have uh, you know have really put their souls into. It. They they didn't just like do a flyby. I, and it's instructive because I just I sold one story where I did the, my usual thing. I I'm about. 
I have a couple of paragraphs. I, I exist in the story. I'm sort of trying to find this runaway heiress. And I end up meeting her at the end of the story. But I'm just a reporter, right? In the movie version that they wrote a couple scripts of, I ended up with a gun. Come you know, on. Trying to, in a car chase with her, trying to escape the bad guys. It was ridiculous. But they, they, those kinds of people are also the people who never call you, who don't ask for your notes, who, who you, know, you know. The people who write the scripts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and these guys wanted all my notes and everything they could get a hold of. And they optioned that script, too, just so... So they had the rights to the material uh, that the actors were performing. You know, they they wanted the real thing. And in fact, their first drafts were almost like the story. Wow. And they became more fictional as their drafts went on. It was really interesting to watch. What I, yeah, so just to kind of, because, you know, we, we, we have, maybe we have some listeners of this show. We've been just trying to figure out if people are actually out there listening. But some of the listeners might be in our MFA program. And I, I, I can only tell them so much about the process of I, I've only kind of been through um, the most basic stages of, of what you're speaking about in the optioning thing. I did a story many years ago for The New York Times about emergency backup goaltenders. And listen, before I wrote it, I'm being real. Before I wrote about them, nobody knew what they were. Nobody knew what they were. And there was I could have written a 5000 word easy story about it. In the blink of an eye, could have written a 10,000-word story about it. There were so many little side stories. Ultimately, that, like, you know, I kind of, like, had a producer very interested in it. He approached me, and then the next thing you kind of know, there was a big holdup on the New York Times side, and I don't know what happened with it, and I don't know if they ever signed. Couple of I, I don't know if I've told this story already, but a couple of months ago, somebody approached me about a story I did. I don't want to say the story right now, but a story I did ten or twelve years ago now, mm -hmm. and they wanted to. These guys are interested in doing a documentary, and you know, I've gone through so much in my life since I wrote that story, John, and I'm sure you've gone through so much in your life since you've done every story that you have. Somehow, I managed to have every single recording and every notebook I, I, I did to make the story <laughs> but it, it's been very much a hey we have this phone call tomorrow night you need to be on it and we have that phone call and it's a zoom and it's two hours long and then we go nine months without talking again. Has that kind of been your experience with some of the other options you've done? Well, I mean, there's always a, a, a lot long, of hurry long, up and long wait. period of not talking, but you know, um, I don't know. They've all sort of unfolded in different ways. Like but basically, you know, people, most people take no for an answer. And, uh, you know, so they, they shop you for a while. And they if it up. doesn't sell, they, they give up. A couple of people have been real tenacious. And these guys actually made it happen. But they're different because they're also screenwriter directors. So, and they've made a, a couple movies. So, so Anything in this book ever get close to being optioned? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I optioned some of this stuff. Well, Gringo Loco got optioned a couple times. Really? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Wasp Woman. That was the f my f yeah, and I wrote the script, and it's the I, the director just got in touch with me. Uh, Which one is it? This year, the Wasp Woman, uh, and he's still going out with that script <laughs> twenty years later or longer. Uh, he that was like an early story, uh, and it, you know you asked about like uh, the the um, grifters. Both that and the Wasp Woman were trade stories, 
I used to love the trades because they would do a story and they would do it pretty good. You'd get the outlines of the story. And definitely with the grifters, I mean, that he had published this book and the reporter had, you know, said this book is a total fraud. But it, that's where you found you know, the mean in the trades. Yeah, yeah, but he was still doing it. That's what you know. He was like producing this movie, and he had this backstory. And I was like, "What the hell?" Uh, and you know, this is one of the things that I definitely learned from Esquire and David Granger and Mark Warren is like, you know, yeah, that it seems like it's been done, but has it been done? It's you know, it's, it seems like a pretty rich story, but how how you know how much how can we do it? That's, and so you go after something and, you know, take a story that's, uh, you know, a trade story that's pretty well done but doesn't really either is caught in the middle of process or it's just, you know, not a real narrative and it doesn't have as much interview muscle and research muscle as you would give it if you're going to do it in a magazine. Right. So it's like out of clips or quick phone calls and stuff like that. And then you go at it and you can really, you know, I was always looking for story elements. Like what's, what's a, you know, who's the colorful character? What kind of dilemma are they in? It was really like out of storytelling rather than journalism per se. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of like what led to the kind of stories I did, which is that like I wasn't trying to make new catch news or interview the celebrity or get the head of the studio or something like that. I was like, what's a good story? It was story? way more nuanced. Yeah. What's a good story? No. Who's, who's like uh, who's 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 weird and different? <laughs> Before we let you go, I, I, I want to ask you that these will be the, let you get out of here soon. But just. You can't interview you, it seems, because every other podcast you're on, I think it's a prerequisite. You have to talk about the paparazzi story. <laughs> because you had a, I didn't realize this until much, much later. I mean, really within the last maybe couple of weeks that you kind of had a photography background. And I didn't know that. My first job was a photographer for the Army. Yeah, huh? <laughs> nah, no, I didn't really. I mean, I, I love photography. And I, uh, you know, I, Do you still shoot her? Yeah, I mean, not like with a fancy hammer because I gave it to my kid, but uh, but I'm definitely a f photo fan, and I you know love famous you know real good photographers and good photography. Uh, and being like in a magazine like Esquire, you're always like aware of like great shots, it. great shooters. So. Uh, but no, nah, you know, that was really about Princess Diana because everybody was like suddenly to the paparazzi right. or the killers. And it was just one of those like overwhelming moments when everybody was after these guys. Yeah. And I thought, well, what's it like for them? Uh, <laughs> Did you? I met this guy, Steve Sands, who was like this notorious paparazzi. And I thought he was funny as hell. And one thing I respected about him is, like, the cops would, you know, people are always kissing movie stars' asses, ki movies' asses. Um, so they would tell you you can't be here on this street, this public street, this, like, and take pictures, which there has been, you know, litigation <laughs> going back to 1904, the Supreme Court saying you can take a street pictures on a public street and Steve would get in these cops faces and say recite them chapter and verse say I'm not I'm not moving I, this is a public street I'm taking my pictures uh, and I've, I've admired his tenacity I love a bulldog reporter no it's the best thing to watch <laughs> and to read sometimes too um, and then the other story I have to talk to you about um, it's it's a fantastic story 
I I didn't I'll be honest with you I I I definitely knew of your work but I don't think I I really sunk my teeth in until I read the the last abortion doctor which was just mm. a very very intense piece that was nominated uh for the 2010 National Magazine Awards and it was published in that year's uh best american magazine writing with with a bunch of of great writers Tell me about it. Like, wh- how, how did you come to do that? It was something that came down to you at Esquire, or was it something you were interested in? Is that the Willie Parker story or the, the Warren Hearn story? I did two big abortion yeah. stories. I forget the titles. Uh, which one was that? The Last Abortion Doctor. I remember it. I can't think of the guy's first name. Hold on. Uh, I think that's Willie. That's, that's uh, Hearn. Why don't uh, we talk about both of them? Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, Hearn was just after uh, t- uh, Dr. Tiller was killed, and he... Hearn is the last abortion doctor. Yeah, yeah. It was, that was a powerful, powerful thing, because Dr. Tiller, who had been this, this w- w- one of the main abortion guys doing late terms, uh, w- um, had been assassinated, and uh, so it, Mark was like, find out who's who's the backup, like all the people who were at Tiller's clinic, where are they going to go? So I found Warren Hearn out in Denver, one of the, uh, you know, then pretty much the last guy standing uh, full time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't know much about it. I was just, uh, you know, once again, a reporter being thrown at a story. And, uh, you know, the people who ended up talking to me had been on a plane going into Warren Hearn's clinic, and they were from a religious community in, um, in Canada. And she had a fetal deformity, and she wanted to preserve her ability to have 12 children, which was her int- goal in life. Wow. And um, so, you know, that's what I didn't understand, and what it's still most people don't understand is that those late-term things, they're mostly really disastrous, ghastly situations. Uh, and that's what I found myself in, because Dr. Hearn let me into his clinic and his life. Um, and he's a prickly and kind of brilliant, and uh, he's been under, you know, he like can't, he's got people outside his house for years. Uh, and uh, so he's under sort of he's pretty prickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and his wife was a doctor also from Cuba, and they were you know really in a dis- in a difficult situation at a difficult time, and uh, it ended with this interview with this this f- couple that wanted sort of t- try to explain why they had to do that. It was powerful, man. It was powerful. Uh, and it's and it's not like a story of sainthood or goodness. Or, no, you know these things are really nuanced. Uh, Just something that exists in the world and and your portrait of it in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean he wasn't really happy with that story. <laughs> really? Yeah, but uh, but just. You know, it's, it's there's some tough parts in it, and then in the other story, to my astonishment, uh, I mean, like that guy let me into the clinic, and um, l- 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 you know, I basically watched him almost do everything, and it it was again really moving and so complicated, and so many human stories and people and struggling with you know desperate situations i mean those kinds of stories sort of bring out a different kind of style and you have to you have to 
be there in your writing with that kind of a gravity. So it's a whole different thing for me, and it, you know, it, I was great. I'm grateful to have been able to do it. Did you, when you were a young writer, did you see yourself tackling stuff like that? Not really. No, no I was much more about the Demi Mon. But, 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 you know, Esquire. This might be interesting for your young MFA students. Is like Esquire was always trying to figure out what to do with me because I would do like oddball stuff and. And there was some taste for that, but then there was like, well, can he do politicians? Okay, let's try politicians. Yeah, not so much for politicians. Some certain ones, but it has to be in the pocket. Yeah. A certain kind of guy I could do and a certain kind of person I just couldn't vi- resonate with. Right. And then, so, you're, okay. You're, you're too cool of a guy, John, I think, honestly, <laughs> man. I think you're a bit too cool of a guy to, to get with these geeky politicians. It's not that. I just, I, like, I need to get somewhere. I don't want to just transmit your message. No, no disrespect to anybody we already (laughs) mentioned or praised on here. I don't think a lot of the political stuff was Esquire's best stuff. That's just (laughs) that's just my personal. And I don't disagree or agree or disagree. Um, But uh, I I don't agree or disagree. But before we let you go, you want to tell us what you're up to now, John? You think there's stories? Are you are you? Is there any magazine work you're still doing or narrative journalism? You're uh, well, I'm doing some stuff, but it's um, I'm not really doing any narrative. I'm, I'm sort of like I've got a book about this adventurer who uh, I went to the Arctic Circle and then to the uh, most dry desert in the world with. And he does a lot of adventures, but I, I'm not in shape to go along with him anymore. You know, he's, <laughs> he's walking across Africa now. Uh, uh, and and I was going to go with him, and then I busted my ankle. I was going to go. I, I was going to go with him maybe for the last hundred miles, <laughs> or fifty miles, or twenty-five miles. We every every now and then he's finishing a transcontinental hike, and he calls me up and says, "Want to do the last hundred miles?" Um, but uh, but so I'm interested in that. But I'm also playing around with uh, these things I call picture stories, uh, and. Um, a little website for them. Really? <laughs> picture stories? Well, what are they? They're picture stories. They're stories with pictures like, you know, like... Uh, photographs. Yeah, mm. yeah. Photographs, even PDFs or like maybe little movies. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not really connected. They're sort of like little dreamscapes that go with stories. You can check it out. I got a website. I haven't really opened it, but it's open. It's called The Electric Campfire. Wow, that's a no, cool... No spaces. The electric campfire. That's cool. I promise the very last thing. Is there any of your stories, you know, as a journalist, it's hard to count how many you've done after a while, right? Um, but are there any of your stories you you still you, – I'll be honest with you, John. You seem like a pretty laid-back guy and kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. But, I mean, um, any of your stories you say, you know, if somebody just took another look at this, it could be a movie. Somebody, You know, is there stuff that you just can't figure out why – it hasn't gone to that next level. I don't really think about movies that much. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I don't really think about that a whole lot. But I, I only I do, ask because it's so. Some of your writing is so cinematic, and all of the reporting yeah, it's, is, it's and all cinema, of the reporting is. The stuff is it is, and I, I and it's about Hollywood, half of it. Yeah. I, I think, well, a third. Third. Uh, of it, yeah. I, but I, I think you know, like, like the the thing. Who would have thought that the Sing Sing story that I had to foist on David Granger at Esquire because he really didn't want to do it, 
And I, I, I reported the whole thing. And then I called him and I said, David, you know, come to the opening at least. <laughs> and, and he said, all right, I'll send a photographer. And that's why we got that story in. Did he do it? He, Did he come to it? He didn't come to no. the opening, but he sent a photographer just because I sh- stayed for the whole thing to the opening. And he was like, oh, I got to throw John Richardson one. And that's the story that they make into a movie. Not all the big crime stories with the like action sequences. So it's that's really about the passion of the filmmaker, you know, uh, and they and they really had a vision and really wanted to make it. Everybody else is just trying to make a deal, you know, or ha, or kind of likes it, uh, but they're not vested in it in the way that a filmmaker is. And so, so I don't think about that. But what I do think about are the story, a couple stories that I've finished and haven't published. And those, those, those. How uh, many do you have? You think? Yeah, like three or four significant things that, you know, killed me that they never got published. And like, you know, the Hal Gathu story, Death of a Small Timer, that was one. It would never have, it would be one of those stories except for that graduate student called me up and said, do you have anything? How long was it on the shelf? Ten years. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I, like, I I did this, So oh, so like I, I did this one story for Playboy uh, about a gigolo a black guy who was a doctor who slept with white couples, white wives. And I couldn't publish it anywhere. And I met an a, a editor from Playboy, and I said, he said, do you have anything in this drawer? And I said, I got a story that cannot be published in America because it's about a black guy. Was it, was it Stephen Randall? No. And, and so that was optioned a bunch of times. But, you know, it was like, so that came out of the drawer. But I have a story... <laughs> These stories happen to me. I have a story about a guy who who became a famous, who ended up being accused of pedophilia, and he he was a famous photographer, and he went after the you know younger models, and and he killed himself. And I wrote an obituary story about him, and I knew him, and I knew his wife, and and it was like so. There's two stories. <laughs> One story you can tell the story about the black doctor. You can't tell the story about the sympathetic pedophile. That's crazy. <laughs> but he was a soulful guy, and and he he had a dis you know a, a mental thing, and you know his his story deserves to be told. That's my attitude about most everybody. Some of these hard things. Are you are you the type of guy? Are you gonna are you gonna keep going as long as you can? Or writing? Gonna, yeah. I don't know, man. I, I got a grandkid right now. I'm focusing on that. <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's great. And, no, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I've done three of these little short things, and I've been doing tinkering with other things. I'm not really committed right now, but I think I will be next year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy right now. Well, John, listen, it was really – I can't tell you how, how much fun this was for me and how humbling it is to have you, have you come in here. I'm just a huge fan of yours, and uh, – I really, really enjoyed the book. The book right now that you can, latest book, he has uh, several books, including one about his father, the spy. My father, the spy. Uh, the, the book that we spoke about today is Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and Other True Stories. It is by John H. Richardson. It is available everywhere books are sold uh, from the Stax Reader Series and Neotext. Thank you for joining us today, John. It, it really is just a pleasure. Uh, I, I hope we get to hang out one more time uh, in the future, man. Thanks. Thanks so much. Super fun. Appreciate it. So there you have it. Just a great chat with John H. Richardson, who's, uh, you know, a prolific journalist. I, I think we could have done 
two or three parts of this episode with him. He's just got so many stories that I didn't know about and so many that uh, after reading Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan, I wanted to talk to him about. And there's probably a bunch I'm going to go Google when I go home from here now. Um, Stay with us. We're back up um, probably at least one episode a month on WXEI and available on streaming uh, moving forward starting in September 2023. And uh, we're going to be active. Um, We're we're trying to get involved in more things here locally in Danbury. Uh, We're trying to keep um, good literature and writing. uh, You know, we're we're trying to make sure that there's a home for good literature and writing here in Danbury. So um, we're going to continue to do this stuff. I hope... I can invite some of these great writers back to have an event, which I haven't quite, um, you know, created a blueprint for yet, but I, you know, you never know. It might happen soon. So thanks for staying with us on Public Reading Club. We will be back soon. We'll be back with October episode um, within the next few weeks. I think we got something uh, really cool up our sleeves. So, again, read as much as you can and let us know what you're doing. Thanks again, and we'll see you on Public Reading Club. Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.